0: This episode is sponsored by Quantstamp, Nexo.io, and KuCoin. Money is changing, so where do we go from here?
1: Join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum on their special best-of edition of Money Reimagined. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, Sheila Warren. For this very special edition of Money Reimagined, we're revisiting one of our favorite episodes. Now, I love all of our guests and episodes equally, but there are a few that really change the way I think about the world. One such episode is our episode on Haiti, when Jerry Tardieu and Daniel Jean-Pierre joined us to talk about Haiti's legacy of slavery debt and how colonial injustice extends into modern finance.
2: Sheila, this one really hit me because I think, you know... Whenever we look at the topics that we talk about on this show, the problems we have of this centralized control of financial systems and the marriage of that to political power, we tend to sort of operate in the present. But the Haiti story just shows you that it goes all the way back. The debt that Haiti incurred that was imposed upon them for having the temerity to demand (laughs) the freedom that the slaves did, the French imposed upon them, then carried through for decades and centuries, ultimately, and was acquired by Citibank, which was enforcing it all the time. And yeah. that ever-growing debt became this thing that they couldn't shake free of. And so it was a great discussion because you could sort of position the conversation around crypto and blockchain as to whether or not this great hope, right, that it could, in fact, break a paradigm and therefore, you know, free people up from these dependencies that have been part of the problem.
1: I couldn't agree more. Haiti just has, I think, a special place for for many people here in the States, because it was such a devastating earthquake. When that happened, you know, a lot of people here uh, paid a lot of attention. And it was kind of the first time for many people that Haiti really emerged on the map as being a place that just had the, the problems, the challenges, you know, that, that it did. So it wasn't necessarily something that had the world's attention until that massive disaster. And then just understanding, you know, why was the infrastructure what it was? And, and how did this sort of, horrible thing that happened you know, so many, so many, many, many generations ago, how did that have the shadow that fell all the way to today? And so I think it's just emblematic of a lot of what we talk about on our show, which is these are systemic problems. Right. They are going to need systemic solutions. And we have to think about the holistic ecosystem in which any technology innovation is rolling out and understand what came before and what we are improving upon, but also what the legacy of all these systems really is and where it all comes from.
2: Yeah, look, I, I think our instinct when a disaster happens, a bit like the Haiti earthquake, is to just look at it and see it in isolation. Oh, there was this, and they're really yeah. poor, and and you're right to think about the systemic aspect. of the other thing that we think was exposed fairly clearly in the aftermath of the earthquake was the problem of something you've talked about, and that is you know this industrial charity complex, and how that in itself was also managed by these large legacy institutions, be they banks or governments or others, and that. Ultimately, you know, decisions get made that serve that interest rather than the interest of the people that it's supposed to be delivered to. I actually think like, I don't know if anybody got a chance to listen to the Twitter Spaces event that I hosted just a couple of weeks ago uh, with with Kimball Musk. He he was really talking about this big green DAO, the idea of using a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization to attack some of these problems with charity, right? That there's all this overhead and all this infrastructure and, and a lot of over management that gets in the way. And ultimately means that funds aren't delivered to to the ultimate end that they could be. So the question of whether a DAO is a solution is something we have to explore. But this is, again, like looking at something like Haiti uh, as a framework for understanding these problems, it is an interesting way for us to then look at all of the solutions and the conversations that we've been having around this technology.
1: And I think that for anyone who is interested in community organizing or, or truly believes that a community knows, often knows what is best for it. How do you solve the problems of the community? Well, it starts with having the community itself identify what are the problems and not having anybody as an outsider come in and assume or presume that they can have the knowledge needed to make that assessment, let alone create a solution. So what I love about DAOs, as we've talked about on the show, and as I know you share this view as well, it is the empowerment that they can give not just individuals, but a community and a community that often is created for a specific purpose, which is why that was spun up. So all these things, I think, are reflected in this episode, and we certainly hope that you enjoy uh, re-listening to it, that you cause to reflect on some of the things that we just chatted about. People talk about Haiti. It usually doesn't take long until the 2010 earthquake comes up. That first January tremor was felt as far away as Cuba and Venezuela. But the epicenter of the 7.0 magnitude quake was just 16 miles away from Port-au-Prince, Haiti's capital. Eight aftershocks followed that same day, and at least 52 were recorded over the next two weeks. The effects were catastrophic. An estimated 3 million people were affected by this quake. Death toll estimates range from 90,000 to 316,000 people. The humanitarian response was immediate and overwhelming. This is actually the time when Haiti first really landed squarely in my headlights, as I worked with the team here in the United States to figure out how to rapidly get philanthropic funds to grassroots organizations on the ground. We discovered, like many others, that Haiti's crippled infrastructure made the delivery of in-kind aid difficult, with the result that the situation was still classified as an emergency six months after the quake. According to the IMF, Haiti is the poorest country in the Western hemisphere. This is not because of the earthquake, although that tragedy certainly didn't help. It's due largely to Haiti's history of colonization, occupation, and exploitation by Spain, France, and the United States. Today, we'll be talking about the legacy of sovereign debt, how it cripples economies, and how it creates such barriers to growth that escaping a debt cycle is nearly impossible. Because here's the thing, Haiti was the richest European colony in the world going into the 1800s. Its legacy of debt began shortly after a widespread slave revolt against the French, which resulted in Haitians getting their independence from France in 1804. President Thomas Jefferson, remember him, was afraid that slaves getting their independence would spread to the United States, so he pursued international isolation of Haiti during his tenure. France also prevented Haiti from participating in trade in the Atlantic, so this brand new country had little avenue for economic activity on the world stage. Strap in because it gets a lot worse. In 1825, over 20 years later, France sailed a fleet of warships over to Haiti and demanded that Haiti compensate France for its loss of slaves and its slave colony. In exchange, France would agree to finally recognize Haiti as a sovereign republic. The implicit alternative was invasion and reenslavement. Specifically, France demanded reparations to the tune of 150 million francs, which was about five times Haiti's annual export revenue. And to make things even worse, France required that Haiti provide a 50% discount on goods it exported to France, which of course made repayment even more difficult. Now, over a decade later, France agreed to reduce this amount to 60 million francs to be paid over a period of 30 years. This is the rough equivalent of 30 billion US dollars in today's money. Historians have traced loan documents from the time of the so-called 1825 ordinance to the final remittance to National Citibank, now Citibank, in 1947, a period of 122 years during which Haiti was saddled with absolutely staggering debt. To be fair, Haiti also incurred significant debt under corrupt leadership, most notably in the 1970s and 80s. But the independence debt, as it's widely called, is considered the most significant factor that has caused the country's persistent poverty. We'll be speaking today to two individuals who are deeply familiar with Haiti and can shed light on the long shadow of sovereign debt. First, we're joined by Jerry Tardieu, a Haitian author, entrepreneur, and politician who represents Petionville in the Chamber of Deputies. Over the course of his career, Jerry has served as the CEO of many Haitian companies ranging from leather to real estate to hospitality. He's also the former vice president of the Haitian Chamber of Commerce and Industry and the former president of the Council for Economic and Social Development. We'll then bring in Daniel Jean-Pierre, the co-founder and COO of Zimbali Networks, which delivers smart ledger solutions for the decentralized economy. Prior to founding Zimbabwe, Danielle spent over a decade at USAID, which included four years in Haiti and two in Senegal as chief legal officer. Prior to that, she did a tour, as so many of us did, in the sector called with varying degrees of affection or disdain, Big Law, in her case at a firm known as Latham and Watkins. But first, let's welcome my co host, Michael Casey. Hey, Michael.
2: Hello, Sheila.
1: It's an interesting time. I've been thinking a lot about reparations lately. It's Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month here in the United States. And certainly, the specter of Japanese internment, the lack of reparations there, the long-standing legacy that that has had on the Japanese American community. It is pretty remarkable to imagine that this staggering amount of debt was incurred at a critical time in a nation's formation.
2: I mean, what it is so telling to me is this idea of being permanently behind the eight ball, that if you start with this legacy and it doesn't get resolved, it means that literally for a century, you're behind. That can apply to all other aspects of it. This is why I think reparations issues are so important, because it is for things like the internment camp, it is the idea that at some point there is this injustice that doesn't just, it's not just a wound, it's not just a a painful memory. It creates the economic conditions that hold people and societies back. So, you know, as we're entering into a phase when questions around debt, we've got student debt questions in in this country right now. And there's going to be in the post-COVID era, massive questions about what to do about the fiscal burdens that governments around the world are carrying. The Haitian lesson is really important for everybody. It speaks to this idea of, of what the cost is over time of bearing unbearable debt. The other thing I think it's worth noting though, is like, it's the extent of the debt, it's the nature of the debt, it's how it's imposed, as well as it's, it's not just debt itself, right? Because access to credit, can be an incredibly empowering thing as well. Where did it come from, right? Is this this is a debt that was started as a cost, an unfair, unreasonable cost, as opposed to something that you incurred for the purposes of you know, like studying or something, but anything that might be actually a constructive exercise. So there's so many different dimensions to this that speak to just really how unfair it is, but also that legacy impact and and how do we think about the past as such a significant component of the present.
1: Yeah, well, I I really look forward to hearing from our guests. There's so much to unwind and untangle here. Jared, let's start with you. I mean, it's an understatement to say that Haiti has been through a lot. Nevertheless, the country has retained thriving culture and industry. And so how are things economically today? And and how is the staggering history of debt viewed from inside the country?
3: Well, Haiti today is living a multi-sectoral crisis this is a country at a cornerstone of its life. It's an economic crisis, but it's also a financial one. It's a societal one, constitutional one. It's a legal one. So Haiti today is a country in crisis. It is a country in crisis, but this crisis is the result of certainly certain short-term elements. But mostly the broader picture shows us that what we have as a result today is what we've been paying as a price for what happened 200 years ago. As you know, Haiti was the first Black independent republic with an epic story. We fought a battle against the French army, at the time, the biggest in the world, Napoleon Bonaparte, and we won our independence in 1804. January 1st, 1804 is the date that is the dearest to the Haitian people because this is the day when we officially began our life as a nation. But from 1804 until 1825, Haiti was put under a commercial embargo. So basically it was black market for the country trying to sell its goods to other countries. Most of the nations were colonialists and slavery nations. And of course, Haiti was a very, very bad example that no one was to follow. So. In 1825, President Boyer as you rightly said, accepted to pay 150 million francs, and we had to pay it all the way until 1947. So on its first century of existence, Haiti had to deal with a commercial and economic embargo as well as an unjust debt. So how Michael said, it's not unbearable only because of the amount, it's unbearable in the way that it was imposed to Haiti and the justifications, of course. Just for you to have an idea, in 1803, I think the US bought Louisiana and all the neighboring states for about $15 million. <laughs> so for virtue of comparison, you have to try to understand that a big of a burden that this debt carried for Haiti. So that's for the first century. Then at the beginning of the 20th century, Obviously, with a country with so little economic opportunities, came instability. And instability made it a pretext for the Americans to invade in 1915. So, from 1915 until 1934, the Americans took over, French banks were put aside, Citibank came in and kept collecting the interest due on the debt to the French and imposed that 40% of the national revenues went to pay the debt. More than that, they added another debt of 15 million that we did not even need. So we had two debts to deal with, one from the French, one from the Americans. And we only really finished paying this in 1947 in the middle of the 20th century. So yes, the burden of that debt was carried for about almost 150 years. And obviously, Haiti is a case study and one that has put the country in a very, very difficult economic distress as we live it today.
1: Thank you, Jerry. There's clearly quite a history here and a lot of different antagonists really that have come through and kind of forced this burden onto, onto Haiti. Danielle, I'd love to bring you in as well now and just ask you. From your decade of experience over at USAID, you know what can you tell us about the role of development banks and debt? Obviously development banks, it's a very different kind of debt than what we've been talking about, but I'm curious to get your perspective on debt as a general matter.
4: Sure, thank you for that question. So that's an interesting one. What, What you find in this space with respect to development banks is that they do offer credit, but concessional credit, right? So there could be, certain conditions, precedent, certain policies that they would want a country to follow and thus get access to that debt. So then the real question is, are those sound policies for that particular country? And what is the impetus for the development of those particular policies? Is it to advance the economy of that particular country or are there other factors at play? So while Development debt obviously is different. There is a theme that you have to look at, which is what are the policies that the development bank wants to see a country implement in order to access that debt? And are those policies, have they been developed in conjunction with the developing country or are they more imposed on the developing country? So that's just to respond in a general way.
0: Quantstamp is looking for talented people to join our team and help us secure the blockchain industry. Our clients include major blockchain projects like Ethereum 2.0, DeFi projects like Maker, Compound, and Aave, and global enterprises like Toyota. As a fully remote team, working for Quantstamp means a great work-life balance, an environment that values creativity and effectiveness, and compensation packages on par with big tech. Come work for the leading blockchain security company, Learn more at quantstamp.com slash careers. Nexo is a trusted, easy to use crypto platform, where you can buy cryptocurrencies at the touch of a button and start earning up to 12% annual interest that is paid out daily. Nexo supports all major assets on the market and even allows you to swap one asset for another or borrow cash against your holdings without selling them. Nearly 3 million people in over 200 countries trust Nexo with their digital assets. So, whether you're just getting started or you're a seasoned pro, get the most of your crypto today with Nexo at nexo.io. It's altcoin season, and if you aren't looking for crypto gems on KuCoin, you're doing it wrong. Known as the people's exchange, KuCoin is the home of all coins with over 400 tradable coins. Sign up today to find the next crypto gem in DeFi, GameFi, NFT, and Metaverse. Join KuCoin with 8 million global investors and claim your $500 welcome bonus at kucoin.com. That's k u c o i n.com.
1: I'd love to just talk about foreign aid a little more. You know, we, we know that there have been various policies, I mean, that have that have sent a lot of aid, a lot times, of, oftentimes it's public health kind of aid, but there are these restrictions that on that aid. So from the U.S., you know, previous administrations, there was this, you can't use development, you know, health aid money for, you know, contraception or for family planning or for you know, these kinds of things, right? There's like really specifically targeted policies that the U.S. is exporting to certain countries to say, here's this money to deal with crisis or whatever it might be, or maybe investment in a sector that needs maybe some of that investment in infrastructure. But you have to also take these strings that attach. And so what are your thoughts on that as a general matter? It seems like it's a pretty common tool used to enforce these kinds of very specific and somewhat bizarre, in some cases, demands.
4: At its core, when you think about foreign assistance, it's taking taxpayer dollars, let's say from the United States, and then using that in another country to advance U.S. national security. So that's really what we do. Development, defense, diplomacy. We are agencies that really focus on U.S. national security and U.S. policy interests. But where there is an alignment is that for example, with the pandemic, there are certain policy interests that are aligned with developing countries in such a way that it makes sense to use those taxpayer funds in these countries to advance those policies. In terms of how it, it functions, because it's taxpayer dollars, it's really, let's just Continue with the USAID example, it's really the US Congress and the US administration that determines what priorities they have for the use of those funds. And so, in a country like Haiti, again, it could be the case that certain policies don't align with what the needs are on the ground. There's not that much that can be done with respect to broader US national security interests and broader US policies. What countries like Haiti can do, however, is use their agency and negotiate how those policies are implemented in country, how the activities that underline those policies are implemented in the country. And so there is an opportunity for countries to negotiate with international donors to ensure that underlying activities do in fact benefit the local economy in the country.
2: Jerry, I, I wanted to come to you and, and, and sort of um, almost guiltily, I think it's, it's uh, it, after everything that Haiti has been through, it seems inappropriate for somebody you know, from a position of privilege living in a wealthy suburb in a wealthy country to ask for advice as to how to deal with debt. But in a way, this is where the, the West is now. The developed world is about to face a massive debt problem. I interviewed Ray Dalio, the head of the biggest hedge fund in the world, for our consensus conference next week. And he's very concerned about what he sees as this 75-year debt cycle. I mean, the world is about to hit this huge wall of debt, and that ultimately, they're going to have to monetize it and, and do all sorts of things that just could be really quite disruptive. If any country has had experiences with this, you know, what are the lessons learned beyond you know, that, it's, that it's painful that you would give to the countries that have actually imposed the pain on Haiti? It seems unfair, as I say, but I'd like to hear your perspective.
3: I think, uh, Michael, there are a lot of lessons that we can learn from. I was uh, happy to hear that Sheila was part of the effort to help post-earthquake. That was in 2010. It's been 10 years 11 this year, and $10 billion later, Haiti is still back to square one. And that in itself is an experience that we should pay attention to. Most of this money was not spent properly. Obviously, there were the management fees, which were very high, but most of it went to humanitarian aid. While What we needed was really nation-building investments. And this is what builds growth, and this is what helps a country to move forward. So that was a problem. But the problem is also linked to the fact that there's a lack of trust from the donor community for the Haitian governments because of the corruption problem. So what they do is they try to go through NGOs and going through NGOs is another big problem because first of all, you know, lack of transparency on management of funds. Most of the funds go to pay foreign experts. And at the end of the day, they go to finance certain projects that are not part of a national agenda. In other words, Haiti has been called la République des ONG, the Republic of NGOs, because there are so many of them, because there's so much need, but they're all over doing everything everywhere. And it's really chaotic sometimes when you take the whole thing into consideration. So I think that, first of all, If we are to think about debt, if we are to think about about fueling the Haitian economy, I think we should learn from certain certain experiences in the past. And one of them is basically the post January 10th. The other one is the fact that yes, there's a big crisis coming, but you know, it's a vicious circle, Michael, because when they eliminated Haiti's debt after the earthquake, Then you have a situation where the IMF and and so many other institutions are saying Haiti is not a country that is sustainable business-wise. In other words, it makes it even more difficult to borrow. So yes, they eliminate the debt, but you fall into a category that doesn't make you a secure country, you're a risk country, and people don't invest and growth is not created. So it's a vicious circle that we have to learn from.
2: Glad you raised that, uh, Jerry, because you know, we've talked quite a bit on this show about the problem of risk aversion, a constant theme that's emerged in recent years. And the Caribbean generally, I mean, Haiti obviously is an extreme case, but right across it, you've seen you know, banks basically de risking, essentially, removing investments from, from the Caribbean, not necessarily because of problems with those countries in, in, in some cases, but simply because their own compliance needs back home are so big. And it brings home to me, Part of the problem of the centrality of US centric management of money. I lived in Argentina for six years and covered their debt crisis for six years. And it was remarkable how much sway the courts of New York would hold over the enforcement of debts. And ultimately, there's a famous case with Elliott management eventually winning after 10 years and holding to ransom the entire Argentine country to get a debt paid back in full. A New York court saying, all right, you win. Now, that, none of that would happen if the dollar wasn't so central to everything. It is that fact that brings all that power back in through those New York courts and means that debt is managed with you know, US oversight of everything, both by its veto power of the IMF and via this just inherent connection to the dollar that everybody has to sort of partake in, because that's the currency that bonds are, are issued in. Now, where I want to go with this, though, is that You know, you've been looking at the blockchain space, you've been, you know, interested in this crypto space, there's a lot of movement in the Caribbean to build independent money systems that could essentially potentially break free of that de-risking problem. We've got digital currencies being created in the Bahamas, we've got the Bermuda doing some interesting things around stablecoin solutions, we've got a range of different ideas there. And really, a lot of the big theme is trying to create this, this system of monetary independence. Do you see hope for this? Is there a way out? Is there a technological solution to break the dependence on what is essentially, I think the conversation we're talking about, a colonial system?
4: That's an excellent question. And I firmly believe that. I believe that blockchain technology can actually allow countries like Haiti to leapfrog in terms of its financial system, its ability to access capital markets, its ability to attract foreign direct investment. And I'll tell you why. Because if implemented correctly, there is an element of traceability, immutability, transparency that comes with using blockchain technology within your financial system. And for all of the reasons that Jerry mentioned, in terms of the risk of investing in a country like Haiti, blockchain technology can allow potential investors to have more transparency on, on where funds are going, how they're being used, who has touched those funds. And so we're working, you know, at Zimbali to develop a solution like that for Haiti. And we absolutely feel that this can allow Haiti to leapfrog into the 21st century in the middle of the global digital economy. And as you mentioned, the Bahamas, Jamaica, the Eastern Caribbean, they are all developing Central bank digital currencies. Haiti, as well, in its central bank, has decided that it is going to pursue a central bank digital currency as well. And for those very reasons, not only for the financial inclusion of those at the base of the pyramid, making sure that everyone can participate in the financial economy, 68% of the Haitian population is unbanked. But what this also does is allow Haiti as a nation to participate in the digital global economy with tools like electronic, know your customer, know your business, and with a central bank digital currency, we can use all of this technology to de-risk investments in the country and to attract foreign direct investment. So this is an exciting um, space that we're in, and I am absolutely looking forward to being a part of that.
1: And Danielle, I mean, in addition to CVDCs, there's, of course, a lot of room for transparency in aid, for sure. I mean, Jerry, to the points you were raising, one of the things I was focusing on back at that time was there's this distinction between disaster response, which is kind of immediate humanitarian aid, and of course, disaster recovery, reconstruction, which is what I was kind of trying to focus on. And it's kind of inarguable that Certainly, the reconstruction should be driven by grassroots organizations, people on the ground who understand what's really needed, as opposed to sort of really top-down, high-level NGOs who may be successful in certain cases at providing humanitarian assistance in the immediate short term because they can kind of scale. Although, again, there's debates about that. What we know, and Haiti is a great example of this, but it happens, it's happened in other places as well, is the diversion of funds is just really shocking. It's an alarming diversion of funds that happen Whether it's two, to your point, Jerry, these administrative overhead costs and management fees and things like this, or it's just that you get the the water bottle pallets sitting in the hangar that never actually make it from point A to point B, right? Now, some of these problems are, of course, human problems, transportation problems, you know, coordination issues that technology can't necessarily solve. But certainly having transparency, one hopes, could lead to the needed accountability in these systems. So that there could be you know, recourse or there could at least be a, a faster way to correct and spot what is actually going wrong. would be very eager to get your thoughts, Danielle, from the standpoint of blockchain in this space, and then Jerry from the standpoint of really this sort of reconstruction period and what is actually needed. You raised a good point. Blockchain can be used for supply
4: chain management, knowing where items are and ensuring that they get to their intended destination on time. So so removing the administrative burden and paperwork in terms of moving goods from point A to point B. So absolutely blockchain technology can be used to facilitate that and to enhance that. And I think we're getting to the point where in terms of broader development assistance, we can also use blockchain technology to track and trace funds, to actually have a transparent system where we know exactly in real time where funds have been spent and for what purpose. And it's immutable and anyone can have access to that data. And so I think that level of information is important for countries who are receiving foreign assistance so they know Where are the funds being spent in my own country? They may not even have access to that information. And then, of course, for donor countries, having that level of transparency because they give funds to organizations that are then responsible for implementing these projects. So having that level of transparency, understanding where funds have gone to implement a project or an activity is, I think it's critical in holding everyone in this system accountable.
2: Jerry, uh, I've I've been interested for some time in the work of Hernando de Soto, the Peruvian economist. You know, he's something of a controversial figure running for president currently in Peru. His thesis has always been a very interesting one that, you know, countries that have large informal economies and do not have things like clear property title and structure to ownership really have difficulty participating in the rest of the global economy. And it just, again, puts them behind the eight ball for so long. I think he came into Haiti at one point and worked with one government on a project to try to entitle everybody. I don't know how well that went or how it was viewed, but I wonder if you've got any thoughts on it, like the idea in and principle and, and, and whether or not you know, there's a better way to do it. Because in fact, partly at my own doing, Anando got interested in blockchain as a solution for his you know, immutable property title stuff. I'm not sure how far that has gone. Haiti seems to be the use case that people point
3: to a lot. I'm wondering whether you've got any thoughts. Hernando de Soto gets it right, because he thinks outside the box for countries like Haiti, where everything is so unclassic, unconventional, unorthodox. So yes, I think that his ideas are very important in the sense that he came to Haiti and looked at a bunch of us in a meeting and said, Haiti is a hundred million billion dollar richer than think." And when asked why, you know, he kind of explained us that uh, all of these houses in the favelas, in the ghettos, with no papers, have been built with money and have a value. So there is a possibility to create a market internally. Because the problem of Haiti, Michael, is a problem of access to capital. And this is why this country is so poor and dying today. I made an experience as an entrepreneur and investor After the earthquake, I was one of those who had a dream to put together a financial package, a pool of investors, and give Haiti its first five-star hotel that would come out from the ashes of the earthquake. And we did go around and try to find funds. I found more U.S. corporations agreeing to finance our foundation with grants, half a million, 200,000, but I could not find investors, whether angel investors, whether venture capital, whether U.S. corporations that were actually willing to invest in the country. The risk country is a big problem. So DeSanto gets it right. And this is when I take all of these emergencies into what Daniel says. Blockchain technology is also part of a process outside of the box thinking strategy. And yes, it can bring transparency, accountability. It can allow leapfrog development opportunities and possibilities. And I do think that's definitely in the world that we are living in today. This is the route to go. Danielle, do you see that aspect here? As, you know, is there a blockchain
2: element to this? Clearly, the idea of a title being something that I might be able to trust because it's no longer in the hands maybe of a corrupt government. It's it. It's now this permanent, mutable, blockchain-proven property right that I hold. It certainly has some appeal. Is there anything happening in that regard? And, and what are your thoughts on it?
4: Well, I agree that it, it has an appeal. I think it can be done in Haiti with the right resources. What you have in Haiti with respect to property rights, it's called affermage, which is like most people lease their land from the government versus owning. And so there was this element of risk that if you don't own the property, then why would I give you a mortgage or why would I allow you to use that property as collateral to then access capital? And so with a lot of these poor neighborhoods that Jerry had referenced, they don't have title to the property in the sense that we think of in the United States. Here's my title, I own it, whether there's a mortgage on it or not. But what they do have is years and years of leasing and paying taxes to the government that show that they have been on this land for many, many years and many, many generations. And so the challenge was can we use this underlying structure to then develop a system where they can then have access to capital? So that's one of the many challenges that you find in a country like Haiti. And it's not at all insurmountable, but it's a question of understanding what's happening on the ground and then developing a solution based on the realities. And with the right policy, we can absolutely use this system to then give individuals access to capital. Because you know, if you look at the UK, most people don't have, I mean, I think it's the crown, really, that owns the actual land and people lease land. So this is not Out of the ordinary, it's it's unusual for a country like the United States, but many countries around the world use this lease system and allow people to get access to mortgage and to get access to capital based on that. Now, once you insert blockchain as a solution, then you can actually easily prove that you've been making these payments. And then you can use that proof to then access capital because of that level of transparency that we discussed. So there are many things that we can do in Haiti to get individuals access to capital because they can they can prove that they are generating revenue, they're generating income, and then they're using that income. And so if we have a solution to capture that data and to analyze that data, then you can use that to then give micro loans, nano loans, and to give individuals access to capital at every level. And so these are the kinds of creative solutions that we are developing at Zimbali. We think everyone, no matter if you are selling fruit on the corner to building five-star hotels, should have access to capital. And the way to do that is to be able to get people to transact digitally, to bring them into the financial system so that we can see how much income, how much revenue are they generating, and then match that to the level of capital that they would be able to access and then repay.
2: Yeah, it sounds like a wonderful project. I mean, in the sense that you are, I think, you know, trying to bring visibility to what I would say a hidden asset, right? Whether it's the ownership or usage or rights to use some land, or as you say, like it's your payments, your credit history, the fact that you've done this ongoing business, but there's no mechanism to capture and improve that, right? So it all speaks to what it's, it's such an Important part of how you get to what Jerry's talking about. It's like we don't want handouts, we want investment. You need that data to build it. I was just thinking, though, as you we were talking about the property structure with this leasehold model. I mean, in some respects, it could be a relatively, relatively operative word, easy leapfrog, because you know, I did some work on this at MIT when I was there. We explored property title work in, in different parts of Latin America. And the problem always came when we were talking about going into, say, you know, slums and shanty towns. Was well, you have to establish who owns it first, and that's a big battle because sometimes it's the slum lord. The sheer absence of of a system in the first place means that you really don't want to take a broken system and immutably put that into a blockchain because then you could have permanently maintained this unfair structure. But if the government is already the arbiter of who owns what through that system, maybe there's a way to just take that system and transfer it into this model. How amenable is the current government or others within the system to some of these inventive ideas that have come up through the you know, blockchain and crypto
4: space? I couldn't say that the Haitian government is a monolith. I would say there are elements that are very forward leaning and would love to be able to implement something like that, starting perhaps on a, at a pilot level and see how they can adapt the technology for their current purposes. So yes, there are definitely four leaning individuals within the government, but I couldn't speak for a general government policy towards that. What I do know is that the central bank has decided that they do want to pursue a central bank digital currency. And so that is a well-known policy for the Haitian government and the impetus for that is financial inclusion. Now, is it limited to simply bringing people into the financial system when you have, you know, most of your population is unbanked? I I don't believe so. I think those individuals are thinking not only short-term in terms of the unbanked population, but something like this can be part of a long-term process to Use blockchain technology in various sectors of the economy. And absolutely, real estate and leasehold estates and getting access to capital is one part that I think there are elements within the government that are absolutely supportive of that.
3: Michael talked about an infrastructure and how do we get out of this? When I was a congressman, one of the things that struck me the most was that for the past 20 years, there was a multiplication of small financial players called cooperative, which went to the countryside where the formal and classic banks were not present and were providing loans, but at a very, very, very highly cost. So I introduced a bill about managing microcredit and microfinance, which was a bill actually allowing more structured players to come in create a market with different actors, and kind of lower the rates. Because the thing is in Haiti right now, the commercial banks that have diversified activities in their portfolio, their most lucrative ones is microcredit and microfinance. And they don't even tag their loans to a land title or something. It's all about trust in the little microentrepreneur. And it works well In other words, there's a vibrant sector of the economy, yet not finance, but that can bring us the kind of triggering factor that we need to get this economy going. And microfinance and microcredit, I think, would be key. And when we take it together with what Daniel is doing, I think that's also thinking outside the box and reaching out to these small players that all put together can give, give us a, a blooming or at least a very decent economy. Because, you know, I always say that Haiti is too rich to be poor, but rich of its people, rich of its creativity, rich of people wanting to invest. Haiti is a nation of entrepreneurs. Everybody's doing something in a corner of the street. Sheila, have you been there? Probably you've seen it. So we just need to make sure that we get all of this together and make it work.
1: You know it's interesting because there's so much connection between between what Danielle was saying about credit history versus payment history as evidence of trustworthiness. So much of this system is gatekept. There's these gatekeepers. There's redlining. There's at a country level. There's redlining at an individual level, right? Based on profiles that don't really make sense in many parts of the world. And one thing that I really have always appreciated about microfinance, microcredit, micro lending is the opportunity to kind of build up. This alternative, where you can kind of say in a more peer-to-peer fashion, I'm going to be good for this, and I'm going to do these things with this, and I'm going to have this capacity that is that takes me outside of this sort of ordinary banking or financial system where I can't get a foothold because of the legacy of my country or me or my family or you know whatever it is, because I can't prove these random things that I shouldn't really have to prove in order to actually be able to make a go of it with this business idea, or whatever it might be. And so I do think that. The connection there between that peer-to-peer enablement, the sort of idea of having these small value, small dollar value, you know, kinds of opportunities, using payment as a substitute for formal credit history, thinking through alternatives around maybe you don't own property, but you have access rights to it. And you've made this kind of, you know, you have this investment you've made and sort of where you are and the transparency that can come from blockchain technology is really, really powerful, particularly in places that have, to your point, Jerry, have really been More the recipient of grants than an actual investment, when that investment often comes with, you know, the mentorship, the resources, the network, as opposed to grants, which more often than not, sad to say, you get the money and then everybody else kind of abandons, right? There isn't that follow-up that's really, really needed. I find this all incredibly rich and exciting. And I guess, I guess the question is, you know, how does Haiti move into this kind of place? I mean, you're already there, but how do we accelerate? The openness, whether it's on the parts of the government that are hesitant, uh, whether it's on the part of the people, the citizens, to understand these opportunities that it might exist globally, is there an education component, and where might that come from?
4: Absolutely, there is a process of getting the country comfortable with new forms of technology. I think the government is doing a great job in terms of its launch of a central bank digital currency. They did something that was interesting just to get the country more aware. They had a competition for the name of the future central bank digital currency. And so anyone could submit their suggestion for what it would be named. And then there was a cash prize at the end. Once they selected the three top names, then anyone could vote, literally, and I voted. Like Anyone could vote for the name of the central bank digital currency. People are like, okay. And so now they're currently going through a competition for the logo for the CBDC. So I think it's really interesting how, you know, they're trying to like build some excitement and some engagement on the part of the population by having these competitions with these cash prizes to get people to think about or to even just be aware that this is happening. So I think that's an interesting way to start that process. And I'm sure as that process develops, they're thinking of other ways to engage the country and individuals so that they are more aware of what this is and what the advantages are. There was one more thing that I wanted to make sure that I discussed was this project that we're working on. And it's, it's called basically like a micro project finance. For a country like Haiti, energy and connectivity are key, right? Like if don't have access to connectivity, then a CBDC is only going to take you so far, right? And if you don't have access to energy, you know, some of these technologies that we've been talking about, you know, can certainly be stalled. So there's that level of infrastructure that's also required that can allow blockchain technology to accelerate in the country. But this this notion of a micro project finance using blockchain technology is that when you have a CBDC. From there, you have an opportunity to program tokens. You can put your policy and your code in your currency. As an example, for the energy sector, like we are very much focused on renewable energy and microgrid solutions to support that. But as we had mentioned throughout this call, it's a question of access to capital. And so our solution is developing an energy-specific token that people can invest in. And that's an asset it can appreciate and obviously depreciate in value. But what's unique about that is what they're investing in is a token that is programmed specifically for that sector with that level of transparency. And so then they can invest in a microgrid project, right? And then get returns on that investment. And it's very transparent, it's secure. So we can use blockchain technology to actually make projects and investments transparent, secure, and and attract capital. You know, this token can be listed on any exchange. Then you can actually get anyone in the world globally who's interested to purchase a token and invest in a particular project in the country. And so we're working on that and we are excited about the opportunity to develop these sector-specific tokens, particularly in energy, because we feel that that is an underlying infrastructure that's going to allow blockchain technology to really accelerate and advance in Haiti.
2: Take this to a comparative level, because you know one of the big debates out there about CBDCs is that it is going to empower these governments, these central banks, to basically snoop on people and to use this programmable capacity to manage people in a way that certainly in, in some parts of the United States, a lot of the West, this is seen as an invasion of privacy and somewhat of a concern. You, know, you often also hear, though, the folks saying, look, you know, in poorer countries where what they need is data, they need to be able to have these tools in place. It's a luxury almost to want privacy. But then the flip on that as well, that seems a bit unfair. Like, why shouldn't we all have the demand for the human right to be, to be free from all this? Is this part of the debate? To both of you, I think, you know, as, as this technology emerges, are people looking and thinking about how data can be used in a way in these new systems to exploit people and what protection should be in place to deal with it? Or is it rather set that for what it is and take the, the positives of this and, and build as fast as we can?
4: I'm not aware of that level of debate, but in terms of capturing data and analyzing data, it's not necessarily linked to an individual. You know, It can be linked to a transaction. And so what's important for a central bank to understand is what's happening in the economy. Where are people spending their money? Not where is Jerry Tardier spending his money? It's just where are groups of people spending their money? How can they use this data to then develop sound policy to advance the economy? So it's not granular to an individual, but more of the sectors in which individuals are transacting. So this is where we are right now. You know, I obviously can't speak for the government, but I'm not aware of that level of debate currently happening.
2: Just generally, Jerry, any thoughts on, you know, the data and uh, the importance of protecting people from this?
3: No, this debate is not going on in the country for the very simple reason that Haiti's level of development is so much different than a country like the United States or many of the countries in the Caribbean, for that matter. The concerns are a little bit more basic, and we're talking about a population mostly interested in surviving on a daily basis. You understand what I mean? So the whole issue of the government managing certain information and, and having access to people and maybe to people's habits and and locations and spending trends is really not an issue. The issue in Haiti right now is how do we manage for this economy to have the right amount of capital investment to get it going? Haiti is a country with a great potential for many years, including not far from now. Haiti was the most profitable route for American airlines from New York and Miami. Um, Digicel, to talk about communication, came to Haiti, I don't know, 15 years ago, thinking it was going to be a secondary market. It turns out to be their most profitable market. Haiti, it has 12 million people living in Haiti. The Caribbean community in itself, all 14 other countries, their population do not exceed in total the one of Haiti. So it's a big market and it's also an exploited market. And Quite frankly, I think that what we need to have in Haiti is to find a way, for example, blockchain can help in attracting investment. That is for sure. One thing we want to ensure in Haiti also is that such a virgin market allows the opportunity of the diaspora to come and invest. There are 5 million Haitians living abroad. In the United States only, there are 2 million Asian Americans thriving, they are doctors, they are nurses, they are soccer players, they are football stars. They are everywhere. They're in New York, they're in Miami, they're in Naples, they're in Boston, they teach at MIT. So how do we manage to get this pool of resources involved in an outside-the-box strategy to have capital flow again in Haiti and ensure economic development?
1: We could go on, I think, for another hour easily. On the topic of diaspora funding, you know, there's this concept that diaspora funding is always in the form of remittances, which is not necessarily true. There's a tremendous amount of potential capital investment. And I saw this during earthquake response. Immunations in the United States are also celebrities, and some of them are very, very wealthy celebrities, right? There is a desire to give back to country of origin, for sure. Um, and that is true of, of many diaspora communities. And the mechanisms for doing so are often extraordinarily complicated, extraordinarily complicated, despite the desire and even the access to that capital that they'd like to use to fuel to fuel their home country. Jared Hardieu, Daniel Jean-Pierre, I learned so much uh, from the two of you today. I'm really grateful to you for coming on. I think we've seen how even with an absolutely crushing ridiculously unfair legacy of sovereign debt in the, in the first phases of a country's formation can arise a system that is innovative, that is forward-thinking, and that is able to actually leapfrog, in part because Haiti and Haitians have had to be so creative about how they get access to capital. There is an appetite, at least it seems to me, from what the two of you have said, to further innovation and to really be thinking about all the different ways that Haiti can connect into the broader world economy in order to create a higher standard of living and really demonstrate what is possible, particularly with things like blockchain technology. We hope you enjoyed this episode with us and that it causes you to reflect on the long arc of history, something that I, for one, believe we have an obligation to ameliorate. Wishing you all a joyous end of year for all of us here at Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren.
2: And I'm Michael Casey. See you
1: in 2022. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined.
0: This episode featured Sheila
1: Warren and Michael J. Casey. Our holiday theme song is Father Christmas by Cody Martin. This episode was produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau. Have any questions or comments? Please send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, happy holidays and thanks for listening.